According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again briefly in uh, Philippians chapter 3. We'll use this text again to fix our bearings, and then we will branch out from here because uh, we're talking about pressing on for the prize. Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And uh, the discussion of the prize singular versus prizes plural, uh, different crowns and rewards that uh, we as church-age believer priests can anticipate that we will receive at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. We have multiple prizes, multiple crowns that we should be looking for. And yet here the emphasis is on a single prize, one goal, one prize uh, of one upward calling that we have in Christ Jesus. And so there's some uh, consideration of this prize as well, the, the prize singular that we ought to think about uh, as it relates to the rapture. And that's what uh, we got started on on Wednesday and what I want to jump back into again here this morning. So before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer. We can thank our Father for uh, His faithfulness and uh, call upon His teaching ministry. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we rejoice in your faithfulness. Thank you for the rain that you send and for the admonishments in your word. The, the rain is an illustration of how faithful you are. And uh, as your word goes forth, like when you send the rain, the, uh, the word of God will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And so this morning, Father, we call upon your faithfulness for sending this word. Open our eyes and teach us, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we introduce the prize singular, uh, I'm going to use again Philippians 3.14 as the base text to get us started on this. So Roman number one would be introduction and uh, main point A, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And there's a, a very progressive nature of this sentence that we've talked about several times already as it relates to these expressions. What is the goal? What is it we're attempting to get to? Is the goal maturity? Is the goal uh, 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 being face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ? What is the prize, singular? Uh, and, and, and there are uh, hermeneutical considerations by which some exegetes will view these all as synonymous terms. They'll tell you that the goal is the prize, and the prize is the upward call. And so all of, they, would, they would overlap these and say it's all one and the same thing. The goal is the prize. The goal and the prize is the upward call. Just being called, that's a prize. Uh, and in, in different, different functions there. I happen to disagree with that consideration, but these are some of the discussions that come into play. So what is this prize? And why is there a singular prize as opposed to multiple prizes? Well, understand, as we looked at it, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus is descriptive of the dispensation of the church. That's who we are in the bride of Christ, heaven, our heavenly citizenship in Christ. When we talk about the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that's a description of the church age. You and I are believers in the New Testament, church age believers. And every born again believer from Pentecost to rapture is a part of this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it's different from previous callings. It's different from later callings, all right? When you look at the uh, angels, when you look at Gentiles, when you look at Jews, when you look at their dispensations, their stewardships, they had callings, but they were not upward callings as ours is because they were not heavenly citizens as we are. And they were not in Christ Jesus as we are. Nobody could be in Christ Jesus until a victorious Savior is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That, until the Holy Spirit is then sent to baptize us into union with Christ. And so I hope we're clear on this. Old Testament saints could become saved. Uh, clearly, David was saved. Daniel was saved. There's a whole lot of Old Testament believers. And when they got saved, their sins were forgiven. Their sins were covered. They, uh, they got to go to, uh, to Abraham's bosom when they died, not heaven. Um, they were uh, born again. They had living human spirits. And with living human spirits, they could cycle doctrine. They could learn the Word of God with living human spirits, okay? But they were not baptized into union with Jesus Christ. Are we clear on that? That is limited to the church age. 
to be baptized into union with Jesus Christ. And so this is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and it is descriptive of the, uh, the church. And so then when we think of the church as a singularity, when we think of the church as an entity, what is our finish line? Well, the finish line or the goal for the church itself is the rapture. That is the conclusion to the, to the, to the church. The, uh, the starting line was Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The finish line is rapture. The finish line for the dispensation of the church is the rapture. And so if you're going to view this text corporately, and if you're going to view this text as the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus corporately, then we can think of the, the prize itself being the rapture. Uh, this can be thought of as the prize, singular, with multiplied prizes to follow the judgment seat of Christ. So if that's clear then, and this is just introduction as we look at it. But notice with me, if you would, we looked at verse 11, we looked at verse 14, we look at verse 21, and we actually have a triplet. We have three separate references. I think all three uh, are rapture passages in this sense. Remember in verse 11, um, in order that I may possibly attain to the out-resurrection from the dead. That this is a rapture reference. Paul's not crossing his fingers and hoping to be resurrected someday. He's actually hopeful to be in the rapture generation, that he would live long enough to hear the trumpet and be caught up uh, with the, uh, the other living saints that never do experience physical death. That's why it's an out-resurrection instead of a resurrection from the dead. And so a rapture reference in verse 11, a possible rapture reference in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Viewing that goal and that prize as the rapture event itself, that means we're living day by day by day, waiting for the trumpet, pressing on until the trumpet sounds, which is exactly what we should be doing as per 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians and our other rapture passages. And then clearly at the end of the chapter, in verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has to even to subject all things to Himself. Clearly, a rapture passage there as well. The transformation that happens when Jesus Christ comes for His saints. And uh, this is what we can expect. The Lord Himself descends with a shout, and uh, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And that's what this text here is talking about, who will transform the body in the twinkling of an eye. We will all be changed, which is a good thing, because this mortal body won't survive the, 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 thrust, the upward thrust to meet the Lord in the air. This body would have a rough time hitting those tiles and hitting the steel roof and hitting the other stuff over, over top of us right now. But to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye, then that steel roof is no big deal. All right, we're going right through as it relates to that. So this is what we talk about with respect to the prize and what we're looking forward to. And why I want to actually do this study to make sure we're clear on the prize singular and the prizes plural that we can attain to. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with striving for reward. We're told to strive for reward. We have positive examples of striving for rewards. And uh, we want to be uh, imitators of that. All right. Also, by way of introduction, every race has a winner. Every race has one winner, I should say. Okay? 1 Corinthians 9.24. We all run the race. Everyone runs the race, but only one receives the crown. That's how it was done in the ancient world, how it used to be done here uh, before, you know, our modern culture decided to give everybody participation ribbons. But there is a winner, see. Well, every race has a winner, 1 Corinthians 9.24, yet cons consider this, each individual believer within the body of Christ runs a personal race. That each one of us runs a personal race. And your race is not my race. Your course is not my course. The race that's set before me is different from the race that's set before you in Hebrews chapter 12, if we're clear on that. And so um, we have the personalization of our walk, the personalization of our calling in Christ. And uh, to me, Acts 13, 36 speaks to this where David uh, achieved the purpose of God in his generation. Uh, Hebrews 2.10 speaks to this, whereby we're saved unto good works which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And uh, we all have the same salvation, but we have the different good works that were prepared. Good works prepared for you were not the same as the good works prepared for me. And, uh, and that's, uh, to me, self-evident as well. And then running with endurance, the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? The author and perfecter of our faith, because that's what he did, okay? Let me just read this one again real quick. Hebrews chapter 12. I love the fact, and we're going to be back here in a moment. We're going to be back in Hebrews chapter 11. So I don't mind turning to this. Hebrews chapter 12. We have this great hall of fame that is chapter 11, dealing with Old Testament saints, Gentiles and Jews, as you work your way through the chapter. And then uh, we start chapter 12 with a therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, we should be focused on achieving what we're designed to achieve. We should run this race. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. If you get your eyes off the Lord, then quicker than anything, you're going to start sinking. You're going to start losing it in the Christian walk. You'll be carnal before you know it. But you keep your eyes fixed on Him. And look, this, because this is what He did. He set that example Himself. Who for the joy set before Him. What's that? That means he had his eyes fixed. That means he was forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That means that he was forward-focused and heavenly-minded. Like the verses we quoted at the baptism yesterday. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. And so this is what it's about. Jesus kept his eyes fixed. We're supposed to keep our eyes fixed on him. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why is it called a race set before you? And why is it called a joy set before you? <laughs> okay, I can make some jokes here because I don't find running to be a joy. But, you know, I did it back when I had to, when the angry man in the brown hat was yelling at me. I ran a lot. But, you know, lately I haven't had angry men with brown hats yelling at me calling out the one, two, three, four cadence and all that, so I don't run as much. In any event, the race that's set before us, the joy that's set before us, and it should be a joy, occupying with Christ, occupying with the things above, occupying with the coming age. And so he despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it says, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We're supposed to consider him. We're supposed to consider the prize. Also by way of introduction, this is what we're headed for. We're headed for the rapture, immediately followed by the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is the post-mortem life course evaluation for the church. This is our judgment. It's not Israel's judgment. It's not the angels' judgment, because we're going to judge the angels. It's not the Gentiles' judgment. All right? It's the church's judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 15 takes you through that. It is uh, uh, what I call post-mortem life course evaluation. That's where the whole life course and all the production is evaluated. Everything you've done in fellowship is gold, silver, precious stones. Everything you've done in carnality is wood, hand, stubble. And everything, the whole course of your life, from salvation to physical death, from beginning to end, the totality of your life course production is evaluated. And, uh, and, there, and you don't have a chance to add to it later. You can't supplement it. You can't uh, make up for some foolish earlier years by squeezing some extra things in there after you die. When you're dead, that's it. It's given unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Okay? That's why it's a post-mortem life course evaluation. And I, I, I use these terms specifically. In fact, I, I created this uh, expression back in 2011 when I searched through my notes, I found that, um, because I was trying to find a way to usefully contrast, uh, to compare the ones that should be compared and to contrast the judgments that should be contrasted. Because I thought that I was confusing things in my own thinking and that I was going to confuse things for my people and that was no good. I wanted to have clarity myself and clarity for my people. So judgment seat of Christ, great white throne, those kind of judgments, those are post-mortem life course evaluations. That is, it's after you're dead and looks back over the course of your life and evaluates your production 
and it provides you with an eternal uh, wealth uh, to begin eternity with. Um, sheep and goat judgment, by the way, is different. And that's what really, really hit home because we were in the Life of Christ series talking about the uh, Olivet Discourse and Jesus talking about sheep and goats. And, and all of a sudden I said, well, wait a minute, that's different. And the wilderness judgment of Israel likewise is, is different in, a way, in the same way that sheep and goat judgment is in the sense that it's not post-mortem. These guys are still alive. And it's not an end-of-course, uh, end-of-life course evaluation. It's not uh, the whole broad spectrum of everything they've ever done being evaluated. It's one issue and one issue only. Are they saved or are they lost? And uh, did they bless, in the case of the Gentiles, did they bless the Jewish people or not? Saved. And the believers will bless the Jewish people in the tribulation. Unbelievers will curse the Jewish people in the tribulation. And so that's presented that way in sheep and goats. And they're separated right and left. And, and the sheep aren't given eternal rewards because they're not yet eternal. They're not yet, it's not post-mortem for them yet. They are living and they get to keep on living and they get to move into the millennium where they're going to keep on living and they're going to keep on with life works, future life works, future fruit bearing, future stuff. So sheep and goat judgment is not their post-mortem evaluation. And likewise, the goats, the unbelievers, they're still alive until the judgment's complete. And then he kills them. He sends them all to hell. No unbeliever enters the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So when he, and he says, depart into the fire that's been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so um, that's, when you talk about sheep and goats, and I've seen this, and I've even probably have a, you can probably find some old notes on this. Um, when, I, I try, when I created a whole spectrum of different judgments, and I, and I put them up there, uh, sheep and goat judgment, along with judgment seat of Christ and, and great white throne, I put them up there as if they were somehow equivalent or, or similar. They're not similar. They're not similar. Don't confuse a post-mortem life course evaluation with a, uh, it's like a midterm versus a final. <laughs> Does that help? All right. So a midterm is not a final. A midterm, great, move on and now finish the other half of the term. All right. Anyway, the judgment seat of Christ is a post-mortem life course evaluation for the church where eternal reward and loss are manifested through fire and this is where the the gold silver precious stones is delineated from the wood hay and stubble now all of that's introduction what i want to do in the development i want to show you what the prizes are for the different dispensations paul said he was reaching forward for the prize but he wasn't reaching forward for israel's prize he wasn't reaching forward for an angelic prize he wasn't reaching forward for a gentile prize the prizes that the church receives are the greatest prizes of any dispensation because we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, who is the heir of all things. And so we have the greatest inheritance, we have the greatest rewards, we have the greatest position. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest uh, of the Old Testament saints. And uh, these things we should be very clear. And so we start with the angels. We know uh, we talked about angels Wednesday night. There seems to be some rewards that they were entitled to, including access to the throne of God, to be standing in the presence of God seems to be a, a reward that only the highest of the angels attain to. And uh, the expression is Gabriel used it. Really, for most of the angels, their reward is going to be serving us, serving the heirs of salvation. And so, uh, and in by the way, those angels that were privileged, that were rewarded to stand in the presence of God, they had to cover their face. All right, with her, the, the seraphim with six wings, uh, they had to cover their face and not look at that glory of God. Interesting, okay? And then serving the heirs, that's serving us as a part of their reward. But ultimately, as far as the post-mortem end-of-life evaluation is concerned, I believe these elect angels are still accruing their rewards. These elect angels are still serving us. Our guardian angels, I don't know, I keep mine busy. Our guardian angels are still working, okay? We will judge the angels. That's future. That hadn't happened yet. And so it's an interesting thing to stop and consider that uh, even though some of them are now presently standing in the, in the presence of God, uh, I don't believe Gabriel has earned all his rewards yet. He's still serving. Michael is still serving. Michael's got a lot of work in front of him to defend Israel in the tribulation. There's a lot of things the angels are still doing between now and uh, the, uh, the fullness of time. All right, on to the Gentiles then. And for this, if you're still in Hebrews 12, great. Then you can back up a chapter and let's look at Hebrews 11. 
If, uh, if we're sketchy on the angel rewards, uh, we're almost as sketchy on the Gentile rewards, but at least we have some information to us that we don't have as it relates to the angels. Remember, we don't have access to the angel Bible. I believe I can prove the existence of an angelic Bible from, from a verse in Daniel. But uh, even though we can logically infer the existence of an angelic Bible, none of us has a copy of it. And uh, I'm not sure we could even read it anyway, whatever language it was written in. But um, we do have a human Bible, and it was written in, uh, in human languages. And in, uh, in uh, Moses, in the writing of Moses, we have the early dispensation spelled out there. Everything pre-Abraham references the Gentile dispensation. And even post-Abraham, what rewards might a Gentile believer anticipate that they might receive? All right, because we have... Uh, different Gentile believers as well that have uh, a, uh, an inheritance. Gentile believers that have an estate they can look forward to for all eternity. And this, uh, <clears throat> this I think is clear as well. So when we start in Hebrews 11, it addresses Gentiles from Abel to Noah, briefly referencing their faith rewards. Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 7. So starting with uh, Abel, and, you know, I can assume that Adam and Eve likewise have rewards laid up. It's just not mentioned here in Hebrews 11. But uh, Gentiles from Adam to, uh, to Noah here, from Abel to Noah, are listed. Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Faith has always been an operational virtue. It's always been a function for believers of every stewardship. Gentiles were to walk by faith, Jews were to walk by faith, were to walk by faith. I think the trinity of faith, hope, and love is uh, a blessing for the church, but I see faith in, uh, in every stewardship. By faith, we understand that the ages were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Now, understand, this is connected to reward. All of these are going to be connected to reward. Not just stuff that they did, but the fruit of that, the impact of that. So by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice to Cain. And, and just consider, why was it better? Because it was lamb instead of vegetables? What made that better? Why was lamb better than vegetables? Because it was by faith. And where does faith come? Faith comes by hear, uh, from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It was in response to the teaching that they'd been given related to animal sacrifices. All right, so by faith. And uh, what else does it say? A better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. And so not only was it an act of worship, but it has production in terms of a testimony. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Though he is dead, he still speaks. And this is what reward is all about. The production that is not just a thing that was done thousands of years ago, but a thing that was done thousands of years ago that continues to be edifying. It continues to be communicative. It continues to glorify Jesus Christ. And so uh, what rewards might Abel have laid up in heaven for him, given the fact that his, uh, the, the, the record of what he did now has edified how many believers? For how many centuries? Something to consider. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And this is a personal rapture that I think between Enoch and, and uh, Elijah, we have foreshadowing of the rapture. There's one Gentile that had this happen to him. There's one Jew that had this happen to him. And so together they paint a picture that represents uh, the church, represents a body that is neither Jew nor Gentile. And so we have the, the personal rapture of Enoch here. So that he uh, would not see death, he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness. We had the similar term, the testimony. He obtained the testimony for Abel in verse 4. He obtained the witness for Enoch here in verse 5 that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And this is another facet that, that directly connects to 
any study we do on rewards. The things that are pleasing to God are the things that are rewardable. Remember, all is lawful, but not all is profitable. Not all is uh, edifying. Not all is rewardable, okay? Depending on what context and what passage you're looking at, it's the same message every time. It may be lawful, but it's not profitable. Everything might be lawful. It doesn't edify. Edifying is what's rewardable. And so Enoch obtained the witness that before his being taken up that he is pleasing to God. Verse 6 tells us, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, and this is the key for Gentile rewards and really for all of us, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. And I think apologetic ministries that debate the existence of God are fine and they do what they do. I'm glad for them. Uh, It's not my ministry, but it's theirs and they do that. But beyond just rewarding, uh, beyond just existing, you know, theism versus atheism and the apologetic debating of God's existence, that's only half the story. He exists, He is, and He rewards. He, He is a God who exists and He is a God who rewards. And the, the principle of God as a rewarder is, uh, is vital. If you don't understand God as a rewarder, I think you have a flawed view of God in terms of His existence. So He is a, a rewarder of those who seek Him. This is something he, uh, he seeks. This is something that He desires. God has desires. Intellect, sensibility, and will. Okay? He wants us. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must, be, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. For such, God seeks to be His worshipers. God seeks this. God desires this. God wants this. He wants to be sought. He wants to be found. And so He rewards those who seek Him. And then finally, Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. (laughs) Can you imagine? He built that boat. It wasn't raining yet. It wasn't raining. There's a marvelous gospel song, quartet song called uh, It Wasn't Raining When Noah Obeyed. Doug knows it. Doug's got the album. Yeah. It wasn't raining when Noah obeyed. It's a marvelous song. And uh, Tim Duncan does this great bass part on it. Um, But the point being is that if Noah had waited for the rain to get started and then decided, okay, God, I guess this is real. I'll do it. It would have been too late. And so you obey when God tells you to obey. You do what God tells you to do, even if you don't yet see why you're doing it, even if it makes no sense. Why am I doing this? Well, because God wants me to. And then later with hindsight, oh, good thing I obeyed (laughs) because I got an ark built now and here comes the rain. Okay? And that's the whole point. And if, if if Noah's neighbors are all laughing at him for the goofy thing he's building in the neighborhood, well... All right, they don't understand, do they? But they will when that rain comes. So uh, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Okay, And so here again, Faith is the operational virtue. We have pleasing to God. We have salvation. We have air. All these languages, I mean, all these expressions, these terms are using the languages of reward that we're going to use when it comes to our walk by faith, our rewards, our inheritance. What are we the heir of? Here's what Noah became the heir of in those, uh, those aspects there. So it's clear, Gentiles have eternal rewards. Likewise, Job specifically referenced resurrection reward. Job specifically referenced resurrection reward. And Job preceded Abraham, um, I I kind of estimate about two generations pre-Abraham based on lifespan, basically. The the length of Job's life was equal to the lifespan of of Abraham's grandfather when you track the genealogies there. And uh, so we can kind of target in in uh, in that generation. Job 14 and Job 19 speak to this. And I should have found, I meant to, if 
find uh, some Gentile examples after Abraham as well. But I believe we can find some rewarded Gentiles, Cyrus, my shepherd, and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, and some other rewarded Gentiles after. Uh, well, Jesus will address some rewarded Gentiles after the call of Abraham. So we'll, we'll see that. But here in Job 14, and uh, this was a text we saw a couple weeks ago in Proverbs, we were talking about Sheol. Verse 13 says, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. He's talking about physical death here in this and what happens when man dies and lies prostrate. Starting in verse 10, he expires and where is he? What happens to man when we die? And uh, if, he, if, if Job could just die sooner rather than later, then that would at least give him a place to hide while God's wrath finishes what it's doing. Job's pretty miserable in this chapter. If a man dies, will he live again? And then he answers, yes. He's confident of the resurrection. All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hand. That's a reward principle right there. You will long for the work of your hands because God's the one at work. God's at work in and through you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And if God's doing the work, is He doing the work for no reason? Is He doing the work to just watch it go away forever? Or is He doing the work so that He can display it forever through the rewards that are then bestowed in our resurrection? You will long for the work of your hands. For now, you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and you wrap up my iniquity. What doctrine? Job knew about redemption. He knew about the forgiveness of sin. He knew about the resurrection. He knew about eternal rewards. And that's what sustained him as he was lamenting over everything else miserable that was going on, how uh, death would be better in this, uh, in this chapter. It's even more clear in chapter 19. Comes back to it again. Yeah, this is uh, a pretty gloomy chapter. Job responded, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me. Talks about different things. He cries out violence, but he gets no answer in verse 7. Feel like prayer isn't being answered. Nothing works. In verse 13, He has removed my brothers far from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My intimate friends have forgotten me. Those who live in my house, my maids consider me a stranger. I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he doesn't answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even young children despise me. (laughs) Wow, that's pretty bad. You know, children are usually pretty friendly and innocent and, and that. But, you know, when a little, when a little child looks up at you and goes, ooh, you're gross, and that's, that's what he was dealing with. The boils from head to toe, he must have looked gruesome. My associates abhor me. Those I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Didn't know that was a biblical expression, did you? It comes from the Bible, the skin of our teeth. There it is. Man, even the young children despise me. <laughs> remember being in Africa and the little kids were rubbing my arm <laughs> little three-year-olds little four-year-olds couldn't believe who this white guy was and they kept rubbing my arm to figure out why I was yeah, why I was so, yeah could it rub off why, why was I such a strange color pity me pity me oh you my friends for the hand of God has struck me why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh Now we get to the issue here. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Well, I got some good news for you, Job. I'm reading your book right now, okay? What a blessing. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Okay? Better than that. This is better than a monument you can carve because those can be destroyed This is in the eternal word of God that not one jot or tittle will ever pass away. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives 
And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. He knows about redemption. He knows about salvation. He knows about the living God. My Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Bodily resurrection of believers when the Redeemer stands upon this earth. Whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. You know, we all have loved ones we can't wait to see again. You know, you want to see your mom, you want to see your grandma, you want to see whatever. There's a pro- and the longer we live, the, the larger that stack of people is that we're going to be looking for. But I love to see my Savior first of all, okay? I long to see my Savior first of all. That's the issue. Item number one, the, the only one that I'm going to be looking for is, uh, is the one that died for me. My heart faints within me. What a beautiful passage. And so despite everything else, despite everything else, he uh, understands resurrection and reward, Okay. And so this is what we have in the Gentiles. And there's more beyond that, I think. Um, there may also be some, some aspects, and I should have included maybe Deuteronomy 32. Did I, did I put those somewhere else? I did not. I should have made a point three on this. But, you know, Gentiles have land grants as well, and there is a destiny in the millennial earth and in the new earth. Um, if I can find it real quickly here. Deuteronomy 32 is a passage in the Song of Moses, and uh, um, let's look at that. Deuteronomy 32. We'll pretend there's a point three on our slideshow here. Um, that nations have land grants and inheritance and rewards. Uh, we just don't have Gentile Bibles the way we have a Hebrew Bible for the Hebrew people. And even though the Jews are God's covenant nation over and beyond all the other Gentiles, that does not dispute that Gentiles can become saved and that they too have millennial blessings and eternal blessings. And so in verse um, 7, remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, he will inform you, your elders, they will tell you, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. When the Most High, El Elyon, we're going to talk about him in chapter uh, 7 of Hebrews because Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek came and blessed Abraham. And Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And this title of El Elyon is, is one that is particularly linked in Gentile passages. So when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, the Jewish nation, of course, this is the one we focus on the most. That's the one that's the firstborn nation. That's the one that has the, the preeminence of all the other nations. Israel is my firstborn. But other nations have inheritance as well. When he separated the sons of man, he set boundaries of the peoples. Boundaries are good things. They divide nations. They're supposed to be there. Fences make good neighbors. Boundaries make good na- nation neighbors. Okay? and uh, so forth. I think that's why Satan hates it as much as he does. It's why he attacks borders. It's why he has waves of, of invaders that coming in, calling themselves immigrants, different things like that. Because Satan hates boundaries. God designed them. Satan hates them. So this is according to God's design. And it says, he set the boundaries of the people's according to the number, and I believe it should be the, of the sons of God, not of the sons of Israel. But that's a manuscript question in the, uh, in the Hebrew. Is the B'nai Ha Elohim or is the B'nai Ha Yisrael? And I believe the better manuscripts say the B'nai Ha Elohim. And it's an angelic reference. It's the angels that are watching over the, uh, the nations and learning and reporting and, and the aspects there. Either way, Either way, however you take it, the Most High God has given nations land grants, boundaries, inheritance, and rewards. And so we have them there. Gentiles. Clearly, when we get to the Jews, we have more information than ever before because our Bible, effectively 70% of it is Hebrew canon. We have Jewish scriptures. And there is much in the Bible as it relates to the Jewish rewards 
uh, and what they have to look forward to, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, reflectively looking back. In fact, I like to use the same Hebrew passage we were just in, Hebrews 11, that we looked at as it related to the Gentiles from uh, Adam to Noah. We have reference to Abraham as well, the Jewish perspective. Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, as it's described there in Hebrews 11.10. He was looking for the reward. Hebrews 11. Now we have Abraham, starting in verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going uh, out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. This is what happens when you walk by faith. (laughs) It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. God tells you to do it. You don't see why yet, but you trust God, so you go. And uh, and you'll, you'll find out when He gets you there. Oh, that's what this is about. By faith, He lived as an alien in the land of promise. In the land of promise. God promised it to Him. He lived there. But He still has to pay cash for the cave that He buys for His wife and her funeral and her burial place and there's other things that he has to do it's his land but he lives there as an alien very humble on abraham's part living as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land dwelling in the tents with isaac and jacob fellow heirs of the same promise imagine it's promised to you but you're living there like like it doesn't belong to you yet because he's waiting for that promise to be fulfilled he's waiting for it to be realized it's been promised but it's not yet been realized, see? And this is really, when you look to the end of the chapter, all of these died in faith, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They all died believing Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, the kingdom of heaven is coming. And every last one of them died and went to Abraham's bosom, not having realized on earth what it is that they were looking for. Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And when he died and was gathered to to Abraham's bosom, that city had not yet been manifest. A city, by the way, we're waiting for is the heavenly Jerusalem in the new earth. It won't even show up in the millennial time yet. It comes after the millennium on the new earth. Looking for the city which has foundations. The foundation stones are going to be named after the 12 apostles whose architect and builder is God. He is looking for the reward. So uh, these things are still future. Moses was looking for the reward. Same chapter, Hebrews 11. We get down down through Sarah and then Abraham again and then um, Joseph, Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. That's really Moses' parents' faith, not Moses' faith. Moses was just in a basket and not really exercising faith as a, as a newborn. They saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Now Moses, verse 24, as an adult, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So you make temporal choices to live in a certain way. You want to live in a biblical way. You want to live identifying with the people of God, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. There's nothing wrong with looking to the reward. In fact, there's everything right with looking to the reward. Keeping your eyes fixed on the reward keeps you from getting uh, your eyes misappropriated to wrong things looking at Egyptian wealth, thinking, hmm, I want some of that. Or looking at other things, thinking, wow. You know, looking at uh, career advancement, thinking, uh, if I was called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, I've got, a, I've got an angle here to become the next Pharaoh. And likely could have, as far as the, you know, Josephus and some other legends uh, re- record the, the likelihood that he could have been the next Pharaoh. Different exploits that he had. Anyway, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, the reproach of Messiah, see, they're always looking to Messiah. They're focused on Messiah for Old Testament salvation. 
greater riches in the treasures of Egypt. So there's nothing wrong with looking to the reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. And it continues. This whole chapter is all about believers walking by faith and the promise of reward to Jews, to Gentiles. David wrote several psalms looking to the reward. David wrote several psalms looking to the reward. And I just selected three of them, but man, probably, I don't know, how many could I have found? Scads. <laughs> Scads is a great big number. Psalm 5-7, just for example. And, it, and it's curious to me also, in the Psalms, in these places, you know, Abraham looking for a city with foundations, Moses looking to the reward, David looking to the reward. I think sometimes we, because we so stress the earthly venue, we so stress the fact that Israel has a land grant and their land grant is on earth, the Gentile territories are on earth, we, we are contrasting earthly with heavenly because we don't have a land grant. Our inheritance is in heaven, our treasure is in heaven, our dwelling place is in heaven. Um, because we do have that heaven versus earth contrast, um, we sometimes, maybe it's just me, sometimes get the reward uh, in, a, in, a, in an earthly versus spiritual contrast as well. And that's not true. Abraham was looking for spiritual rewards on this earth. Job was looking for spiritual rewards on this earth. David is looking for spiritual re rewards on this earth. Not just uh, earthly rewards, not just a plot of land and some wealth. So um, Psalm 5 verse 4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and deceit. And this is not just true in time. This is true for all eternity. That's why unbelievers are removed from His presence for all eternity. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. This is a reward David has to look forward to. Remember, there is no house. Solomon hadn't built it yet. David's writing these psalms, and David clearly understands that anything that's built on earth is a replica of what's in heaven. And he's looking forward to fellowship with his Messiah in, uh, in the resurrection in eternity. By your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. And it goes on. It describes what the earthly life is like and why it's a, a conflict and why the struggle is. But he's keeping his eyes on the prize, on the reward. Verse 11, let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. Looking to the prize allows you to endure every conflict, every suffering, all the testing that we deal with here on this earth. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. So in Psalm 5, looking to the reward. Psalm 17, David is looking to the reward. Psalm 17, he's uh, got more conflict. Folks are uh, attacking him. In verse 6, he says, I've called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. So he's going to keep praying until the answer comes. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior, of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against him. Keep me as the apple of the eye. You didn't know that was a biblical expression either. Skin of my teeth, apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now, it's interesting, when you get down here, what is the estate? Whatever else happens. Um, verse 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, whose belly you fill with your treasures, 
We're going to talk about this crowd. This crowd's in Philippians 3, whose God is their belly. They're focusing on the earthly things. That's who David's talking about here. Men of the world whose portion is in this life, whose belly you fill with your treasure, they're satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. In other words, temporal life, they seem to have it all. Their kids are going to inherit quite a thing. What's David going to inherit? As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. That's what he's looking forward to. He's looking forward to the reward, looking forward to seeing Jesus' face when I awake with your likeness. He's being molded. He's being transformed. It's not just this life. It's the next that he's looking forward to. There's satisfaction for you. And then, of course, Psalm 23. Everybody knows Psalm 23. Do you ever recite Psalm 23 and think that it ends with, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life? It doesn't stop with all the days of my life. Because all the days of my life is finite. All the days of my life come to an end. There's something past that. What happens after all the days of my life? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. (laughs) That doesn't stop. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So here's eternal rewards. And David's fixed on them. He's, He's got his eyes locked on these rewards. Looking forward to the resurrection. Looking forward to the glory. And many more we could find beyond just Psalm 5, Psalm 17, and Psalm 23. Daniel was promised an allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel 12, 13. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Where he belongs in the prophets... (laughs) where he used to be in the prophets. I think when Josephus gives us the canon uh, that, that was in his day, I think Josephus betrays the, uh, the truth that Daniel was among the prophets in their Hebrew canon. And not until the second century and later then did the Jewish rabbis come along and move the book of Daniel out of the prophets and move the book of Daniel over to the writings. Today, if you open up a Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, uh, Daniel belongs in the in the Ketuvim, not in the Navi'im, that the rabbis have taken Daniel out of the prophets and put him over in the, uh, in the writings. Um, anyway, I believe that Daniel was originally in the prophets, and, and Josephus betrays that, um, interestingly enough. End times here for Daniel in chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who has found written the book, will be saved, will be rescued. All Israel will be saved, okay? But they've got to come through tribulation, and, and they must be believers. If they're not believers, they, if they're not saved, they won't be saved. Got that? If they're not eternally saved by faith in Christ, they won't be delivered into the millennial kingdom. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt, the twin resurrection, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of death. John 5 addresses this, other passages address this. But as for you, Daniel, he's getting his retirement message here. (laughs) Conceal these words in verse 4, seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. I think that's us. We are in the age, we are in the, the, the period of human history that has greater travel than ever before. Many will go back and forth. Knowledge will increase. We have communication in a better way than ever before. We have accumulated information in a way uh, than, that's never been done before. Anyway, Daniel's not ready to retire yet. He wants more things answered. <laughs> in verse 8, As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? You know, Daniel is that student that's always raising his hand, always has one more question, always has one more question. He's never done. And the teacher finally says, all right, enough. Go your way, Daniel. These words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. 
and uh, gives some other things. There's some numbers that we don't get in 1290 and 1335. But then verse 13, he says, Go your way, Daniel. As for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Reward that Daniel is anticipating here. Yes, sir. Do I think Romans 1 addresses Gentile salvation? Is that what you're asking? And Jewish salvation. Sure. Yeah, God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. I I believe seeking glory, honor, eternal life, that is an an idiom for accepting the gift of of salvation by grace through faith. Yeah, that's not a human effort. All right. By the way, as long as I'm here in Daniel, I mentioned this earlier. Look at the last verse of chapter 10. Gabriel is in a hurry to uh, he's in a hurry to get back to the battle. He's, you know, Michael and, and him are duking it out with some of these fallen angels, and uh, Gabriel had been held prisoner for a time until until Michael had busted him out of out of the uh, the angel jail. There, it's a fun chapter in Daniel chapter ten, and he says um, Gabriel here is talking to uh, to Daniel. In Daniel 10, 20, he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth. Behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So he and Michael have to finish their battle against this fallen angel called the prince of Persia. Get that done with because the prince of Greece is on the way. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. That's our verse right there that, that I think speaks to an angelic Bible, that speaks to angelic information. Because he says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael your prince. And so he's eager to get back to the battle, but he's going he's to stop just long enough to give Daniel a Bible class out of the writings of truth. Well, then we read chapter 11, which is what he's telling him has been inscribed in the writings of truth. And this is nothing we have anywhere else in the Bible, nothing we have anywhere else in the Hebrew canon, nowhere else in the Old Testament, nowhere else anywhere. So what's he reading from to give him this information? I think it's called the writings of truth there. I think it's the angelic canon, the angelic information, the briefing books that angels get before their tour of duty. Different aspects on that. Anyway, as long as I was in the neighborhood, I thought I'd show that to you. Um, but as far as Daniel's reward, you will go to rest, you will enter into rest, you will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Daniel was of the tribe of Judah. He was of the, the Davidic family. He has a place in the greatest Jewish inheritance ever. One of the greatest uh, 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 allotted portions, the greatest lots, is, is Judah's. And then within Judah is the clan of Ephrathah, Ephrathah Bethlehem, the line of Jesse, the, the line of David. And then Daniel's a part of that lineage a part of that house and so he will have an allotted portion at the end of the age looking forward to that jesus we'll talk about this on wednesday jesus delivers many kingdom of heaven messages some of them are parables many of them are parables but he talks about the kingdom of heaven and he uses reward language he talks about feasts he talks about weddings he talks about coming kings he talks about foolish versions of virgins that should have had more had some oil with them And in these messages, we're going to have to take them one by one and be cautious. He delivered many kingdom of heaven messages featuring mostly Jewish, but some Gentile addresses as well. When he says there's folks coming from the east and the west are going to die with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when some of the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast out. Jewish people will forsake some of these rewards that will be given to Gentiles, Jesus said. Jesus encountered a, a Roman centurion that had more faith than any Jew he'd come across yet. He goes, wow, what faith this guy's got. This, this centurion understands chain of command and giving orders long distance and expecting things to be carried out down the, down the chain. And Jesus praised that man. And so in some of these messages, um, most of them are Jewish. Some of them are Gentile. I will even accept possibly church applications 
but I'm going to reject that conclusion and then show you why those possible church applications are actually not, that they refer to the apostles who were apostles prior to the church. They were apostles of the Lamb. And so those apostles have rewards, but they're not church rewards. They're, they're apostle rewards for what they did. In fact, Peter and James and that crowd, they get actually, they're going to have rewards for the stuff they did in the Jewish stewardship. And then they're also going to get rewards for the stuff they did in the church stewardship. And so that, that only those crossover apostles that were apostles of the Lamb that cross over into the church and become apostles of the church, uh, they will have reward. And Jesus addressed the apostolic rewards, but they are apostles of the Lamb, not church age rewards. I don't think Jesus spoke of church age rewards because the church was a mystery when Jesus was, was ministering on this earth. Okay? And so we've got to be cautious with that because I don't want you guys reading Jody Dillo, reading uh, Servants of the Shepherd King or reading uh, his new one. I can't remember the title. Final Destiny. It's, he's got a new third edition out of Servant King and it's 1,500 pages. It's a monster book. That thing... Uh, I, I, I've read part of it. I may never read it all. It's just huge, okay? Um, and before you, you start reading Dillo and getting terrified of missing out on the millennium, um, come Wednesday night and we'll, we'll, we'll straighten that out, okay? We're not headed for the outer darkness. We're the bride of Christ, and we're going to be clear on that. So, Father, I thank you for this morning. I uh, went a, a couple minutes over, but, Father, you are faithful. I pray that you would take hold of this teaching. Bless your children. Uh, feed us abundantly, Father. I thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is our break time. We'll come back at 11 o'clock for Hebrews. Also, if you can come back at 6 o'clock, I'm teaching a class on shepherding and uh, based on this paper I've been working on. So I'm going to be teaching the 6 o'clock hour as well tonight. Should be a very good.